Welcome to Hot Topics in Kidney Health, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation. Each episode, we highlight the latest in kidney research, bring you up-to-date news in kidney care, dispel myths, and answer your kidney health questions. Did you know that 40% of chronic kidney disease progression may be preventable with earlier diagnosis and treatment? On this episode, you will hear the facts about treating CKD earlier from Dr. Joe Vassilotti, NKF's Chief Medical Officer. You will also hear from Jane DeMay on her journey with kidney disease. Hello all, my name is Marlena Chesner. I'm the Digital Content Development Manager here at National Kidney Foundation, and I am so excited and thrilled to be the new host of Hot Topics in Kidney Health. So to start off, would you both just introduce yourself? Um, start with Dr. Vassilotti. Hi, good morning. I'm Joseph Vassilotti. I'm the National Kidney Foundation's Chief Medical Officer. I'm a nephrologist or kidney doctor, and I'm a clinical professor at Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and it's wonderful to be with you here today. Awesome. Jane? Yes, good morning. My name is Jane. I am a uh, stage five patient, uh, kidney patient. I'm also a national ambassador for the National Kidney Foundation, and I do a lot of patient advocacy. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so to start off, Dr. Vassilotti, on an earlier episode of Hot Topics in Kidney Health, it was mentioned that 40% of CKD progression may be preventable with earlier diagnosis and treatment. Could you explain if that's true and if so, why? Yes, I think that refers to a new class of medications called SGLT2 inhibitors or Flozins. And these were originally used for type 2 diabetes, but we found that through clinical trials, it not only helps reduce the risk of kidney disease progression in people with type 2 diabetes, but also people with kidney disease in the absence of type 2 diabetes. So they're really exciting medications that reduce the risk of kidney failure uh, about 40% in clinical trials. And right now, three of the drugs have been shown in kidney disease trials to reduce the risk of kidney disease progression. And they also reduce the risk of heart failure. And they also reduce the risk of death and probably cardiovascular death. So these are really powerful medications and a new tool in our toolbox, if you will, to treat people living with kidney disease. And I'm really excited that Jane is here today to tell her story, to put a human face um, to the challenges and, uh, and also, I think, the hope that we face uh, with kidney disease in 2023. Perfect. So, Jane, before we get to you, I just want to talk a little bit about each of these three medications. So can we start with SGLT2 inhibitors or Flozins? Sure. So the, the three medications uh, are uh, Invokana, that's uh, also called canagliflozin. And that uh, there was a Credence trial, that's the kidney disease trial. There is also uh, dapagliflozin or Farsiga, and that was a DAPA CKD kidney disease trial. And the third uh, flozin or SGLT2 inhibitor uh, is called Jardiance or empagliflozin. And there was an EMPA kidney trial that showed benefits there. So that's the three medications in the SGLT2 inhibitor class that have shown um, benefit. There, um, there is another type of drug uh, called a non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist or non-steroidal MRA, if you will. 
and that is called finerenone or carendia. And that has also been shown in trials uh, to reduce the risk of kidney disease progression about 20% and to reduce heart failure about the same amount, heart failure hospitalizations. So um, these are uh, two new classes of drugs with the SGLT2 inhibitor and an additional type of drug that are kidney protective. And I should point out that that is with baseline standard care uh, that has been uh, ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker. These are blood pressure, kidney protective medications. Um, and ACE inhibitor is a pril, if you will. Lisinopril is one of them. Quinapril is another. These are generic names. Um, Zestril is a brand name for lisinopril, for example. And these are blood pressure medicans that, medications that have also been shown to be uh, kidney protective. And uh, the angiotensin receptor blockers, those uh, go by Sartan, like Losartan or Cozar is one, or uh, Candesartan or Atican is another one. And these are, are kidney protective blood pressure medications. And it's really important that I mention those because the treatment with those blood pressure protective, kidney protective medications and the addition of the SGLT2 inhibitor or um, the finerenone. So we have multiple medications now that are kidney protective. And I think I would be remiss if I didn't say that, of course, healthy lifestyle is important and, and, uh, and it's important that uh, that be part of the treatment of the patient uh, with kidney disease or the American living with kidney disease like Jane. That's really exciting that we have these new drugs coming out. So Jane, could you tell us a little bit about your journey with kidney disease? Certainly. So um, back in around 2003, 2004, um, I was going through a, a period of a lot of pain and my doctor had put me on a prescription level of NYSAIDs, um, about 1800 milligrams. And I was on that for almost three years. And then they finally diagnosed me with cardiac arthritis and then put me on some more medications. And at that point, I uh, had a reaction and I kind of crashed my kidneys. I didn't kind of crash my kidneys. I crashed my kidneys. I also never had diabetes. It doesn't run in my family, um, but the incident caused me to have diabetes. So I mustered on at a stage 3B for several years. And as kidney disease does, it, it progressed without having uh, any real um, action on my behalf or any of my doctors either to, to prevent it. I was finally put on insulin uh, around 2016, I went through a phase of terrible kidney stones, um, passing them like a goose. They finally put me on uh, alpurinol to help relieve me of that issue. But the damage was done and it was progressing pretty bad. So in 2018, luckily for me, I, I retired from my profession and decided it was time for me to take care of me. Saw my nephrologist in uh, April of 2018. She said, Jane, you're going to be on dialysis in six months. And I said, no, I'm not. So I did everything I could. I learned, I, I went to classes, I read, I, I Googled, I became a Google queen trying to find as much information as I can. And there is a lot of really good information out there on kidney disease. I went and saw a renal dietitian. I changed what I was eating. Being a person of size, I've been on diets my whole entire life. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a good renal diet. So 
with her guidance, I did change. I lost over 38 pounds in about eight months. Um, 2020 hit and I started to put weight back on, having difficulty trying to find the foods that I wanted. And so I went to a plant-based type of diet and continued to lose weight. Um, I have maintained for the most part that weight, uh, weight loss. Um, I have kept sort of modified my diet, my protein. I dropped my protein level pretty low. So I had to bring that up a little bit. Um, but I have successfully for almost five years stayed off of dialysis. However, as kidney disease is, it probably will be very soon in my future that I will be starting dialysis. But I feel great. I go to exercise class twice a week. I walk two miles a day. I still stick to my diet. Um, it's, it's very doable to take control of the disease, even when you're in late stage. Great. Could you actually maybe give a little bit of advice for people who are just starting plant-based diets with kidney disease or, you know, maybe those who are struggling to stay on them? So what helped you? Well, the trick with plant-based is that you have to take, consider your other comorbidities. So if for me, for example, and it's quite common, if you're uh, diabetic, you have to watch your carbs at the same time that you're watching your protein, that you're watching your vegetables. It, it's, it's confusing. So my first recommendation is if you can find one, find a renal dietitian, someone who can understand the impact on the kidneys of what you're, you're consuming. Um, that is really a big help. And then you learn over time. I also highly recommend that if you're going to uh, practice a diet, that you learn the nutritional value of foods. So that way, what you're consuming gives you the best bang for the buck. And, and it's easier to stick on it. Any diet is easier to stick on if you are satisfied with what you're eating. That is excellent advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. So in your journey, have you had any personal experience with the medications that Dr. Baslati was speaking about? I actually have. So um, I was participating in a patient advocacy group that was actually talking about, and I can't pronounce the, the clinical name of it, but it was for an SGLT2 inhibitor called Frasica. And when I heard about this, um, I didn't think it was going to be appropriate for me but I did because my diabetes at that point was pretty well controlled. Wasn't great, but it was pretty well controlled. It was bouncing between seven and six, not awful. But my husband's diabetes was terrible. It was totally out of control and he was having a lot of other issues about it. So his nephrologist is my nephrologist. So I asked her about it and she looked into it. So my husband went on Farsica. He has had just an unbelievable success with it. He went from a stage 3B to almost stage 2. And about a year, maybe a year and a half being on that drug. Um, he's lowered his insulin dependency and his other issues that he was having have also really improved. I personally went on Ozempic, which is a GLP-1 inhibitor, um, mostly to, to uh, lose weight but I'm on a very, very low dose because my diabetes, I've been at 5.6 for over a year. So um, my diabetes is really, really in control. And I know it's the Ozempic is helping it. So I'm actually starting to wean off of that as well. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Dr. Vassalotti, it sounds like Jane's husband had an amazing reaction to these drugs. Is that typical? I think anecdotally, we've seen some patients have kidney function improvement with uh 
SGLT2 inhibitor use. But I think in general in the trials, what we see is that the loss of kidney function over time is reduced compared to placebo. So if you flip a coin and you take an SGLT2 inhibitor or you don't, if, if you have type 2 diabetes or another kidney disease and you're being treated with an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker, the loss of kidney function over time is uh, slower or blunted in people who take SGLT2 inhibitors compared to those who don't. And the time for dialysis is prolonged uh, by many years in the studies, depending on how early it started. So the earlier it starts, the longer uh, dialysis uh, gets prevented, actually, or, or um, the prolonged period of time that the patient can enjoy, or the person can enjoy um, health off of dialysis or kidney transplant. Great. So are these medications widely used? And if not, um, is there anything being done to increase the awareness of these medications? I think that these medications um, have some side effects, so maybe there's some concerns about them. They're not for everyone. The way they work is they block the proximal tubule or parts of the kidney from absorbing glucose or sugar so that you have sugar in the urine or glucose in the urine. So it's important for people to know that because they will see their urine dipstick test or the urinalysis show positive for glucose, which in the past people worried about with type 2 diabetes that was a sign of poor control. That's expected. Um, in addition, that glucose in the urine probably increases the risk of fungal or mycotic um, genital urinary infections. So it's important to uh, maintain, we call it urethral hygiene, just simple stuff uh, like um, clean undergarments and uh, bathing daily can help prevent that uh, complication. In addition, for people with type 2 diabetes who take insulin especially, there's a risk for something called ketoacidosis. That's a metabolic complication. And that um, can be reduced. The risk of that can be reduced by what we call sick day rules. So trying to avoid taking the SGLT2 inhibitor for hospitalizations, for elective surgery, or if you feel unwell and you're unable to eat and drink normally. Because the medications put glucose into the urine, they act like diuretics or water pills. They increase the urination. And so patients can become dehydrated, if you will. I guess that would be the lay explanation for it. So we have to be careful about um, dehydration for people with kidney disease. Uh, but for the most part, many people with kidney disease have hypertension and they're volume overloaded. And the, this probably is one of the reasons why SGLT2 inhibitors are beneficial. So in short, I think one of the reasons why they haven't been used as much as they should be is that uh, there are concerns of side effects. Uh, another reason is out-of-pocket costs for the patient, um, which can be high. Um, and I think another reason is that clinicians are just starting to get familiar with uh, this type of uh, medication or this class of medication since it's relatively new and the trials um, really are recent. Um, so I think with time, hopefully we'll see that um, increasing. And there's a lot of activity going on with the National Kidney Foundation educating um, clinicians and patients about uh, how to best use these medications and how to move forward and increase access to um, SGLT2 inhibitors. And I should also point out that the government relations team is also working to improve access to SGLT2 inhibitors. And I think they're really exciting because they really make um, 
testing for kidney disease, screening for kidney disease, early diagnosis, they really increase the impact of that and the, the benefit for the individual and that we can really say that we have um, powerful medications that can prevent kidney disease. We can prevent kidney disease. Um, and that is really an exciting thing to offer uh, people. And, and I think Jane's story is so poignant and I wanna thank her for sharing her experience because it's inspiring to me that she did a lot. You know, She changed her diet multiple times. She lost weight, which is always hard to do. Um, but even as we, um, let's say as we get gray hair, I think I certainly know that it's more difficult to lose weight. Um, and I think that one of the things about kidney disease that we can try to work with Americans or people living with kidney disease like Jane is that, that concern or fear of dialysis, we can turn that into motivation. And I really feel that Jane has done that. Um, and working with a registered dietitian for, with medical nutrition therapy for diabetes or, um, or for CKD, a GFR less than 60, you can see that's a kidney function level less than 60. You can see a dietitian in, in most health plans. Um, that really, I think, is a great way to individualize your meal plan to make it palatable to your lifestyle, but healthy at the same time. So Jane, could you talk about if you had any experiences with side effects or just the cost associated with these drugs? Uh, well, my husband has had absolutely no side effects at all for Forsica, and I'm always asking and making sure that he's you know, doing what he needs to do and getting checked um, with his labs and stuff to make sure that things are going well with him. The one thing that the doctor mentioned that is very true is the prohibitive cost of these drugs. However, both programs that I am on, my husband and I are on, have patient assistant programs and they're very easy to apply for and they're very easy and quick to follow through and they actually pick up the cost of the drugs completely. So that really has been very beneficial. You just have to put a little effort into finding out if uh, you qualify. Um, I will say that the income level um, qualification is really pretty easy to reach for most people. That's some great information. Thank you so much for sharing that. So if anyone else, you know, listening is interested, definitely take a look at these uh, these programs that could help with costs. Another thing I think it's that's worth mentioning. It may be worth working with your pharmacist or your clinician to try to find the medication that's best covered because sometimes of those three I mentioned, um, only one or two are covered and will reduce your out-of-pocket costs. So working with your care team and the pharmacist, I think, can particularly be helpful, um, can also help reduce the cost. And if, if that doesn't work, then the access programs that Jane mentioned, I think, uh, are great. And I think over time, it's fair to say over the last few years that the out-of-pocket costs have really decreased a lot. So I think the access has definitely improved, although there are still challenges for people. Well, that's super good to hear. We definitely want anyone who, you know, can use these drugs and benefit from them to be getting them. Um, so doctor, could you talk a little bit about who should be asking for these drugs? Well, I think in general, uh, people living with chronic kidney disease uh, should ask for these medications. You know, they're not FDA approved for type one diabetes. So uh, basically, anybody with chronic kidney disease, um, except someone who has type 1 diabetes, I think it's uh, worth asking your clinician about uh, taking these medications. The level of kidney function, that's called the estimated GFR, needs to be above 
20 per the uh, FDA probably or and per the um, recent trials, I should say. So um, you would have to have an EGFR above 20 to start. And in general, the medications are recommended to be continued, the, the flozins of the SGLT2 inhibitors until dialysis or transplant is necessary. Especially people living with kidney disease who have albuminuria or proteinuria, elevated levels of those. Um, and that's something you can ask your clinician for testing if you haven't had that done. The blood test is called creatinine for the estimated GFR, and the urine test is for albuminuria for the urine-albumin creatinine ratio. So increased levels of albumin in the urine um, generally will mean that you may benefit from an SGLT2 inhibitor. And then there are other reasons to take SGLT2 inhibitors, even if you um, don't have kidney disease, but you have heart failure, or if you have kidney disease with heart failure, that would be another reason because the SGLT2 inhibitor will not only help uh, reduce the risk of kidney disease progression or protect kidney health, it will also prevent heart failure hospitalization, um, or reduce the risk of heart failure hospitalization. So I think that the group of patients who are eligible are, are really increasing. I think we worry about using them in people who have had frequent urinary tract infections and in people who have um, instrumentation in their urinary tract, like people who have suprapubic catheters or bladder catheters, or sometimes they're called Foley catheters, for example, who live with indwelling catheters like that. Um, probably those would be avoided. People who have uh, low blood pressure may not be able to tolerate them. Um, so uh, there are some cases that they wouldn't be um, used, but I think it's worth a conversation with your clinician and your care team, your nephrologist, your primary care doctor, your endocrinologist, your cardiologist, all of those are clinicians that you can discuss uh, taking these medications with. And, um, and then also coordinating, if you do take an SGLT2 inhibitor like Jane's husband, hopefully all her doctors are aware of them, particularly the ones if you're seeing a nephrologist or a cardiologist, um, that they uh, that they all are aware and work together, because you don't want to have one doctor start and the other one stop it. Or, um, for example, that I think that is a that is a nice aspect of these medications because they kind of are cross cutting. You know, they affect kidney disease and heart disease and diabetes. That multiple specialists and primary care clinicians get involved in their use. Jane, could you talk a little bit about that coordinating between the different um, healthcare professionals? Is it difficult or you know, what's your experience been with that? Uh, it is difficult if you're a, a affiliated with one uh, organization that houses all the different components, endocrinologists, cardiologists. Fortunately for my husband and I, we are in one uh, organization such as that. And so he sees the same nephrologist, we see the same cardiologist, and we see the same G GP. So um, it's very easy for us to coordinate. We also have a patient portal. So we do communicate with our doctors. Um, and I also make sure that they coordinate with each other. So, and we can see the notes so that we know who's talking to who. And it's very important to, if you don't have that opportunity, if it means that you have to take a transcript of your last visit from one doctor to the other, it's important that you do that to keep everybody in the loop and on the same page. Yeah, that's some great advice. Um, are there any other ways that you've um, basically advocated for yourself and any tips for other patients who may need to do the same? Yes, I, I think it's important as a patient that you take some responsibility for your own self-education. 
uh, you can't ask a question if you don't know what the questions are. And so then how can your doctor answer the questions if you don't come to them prepared? So um, there are many opportunities. National Kidney Foundation has copious amounts of information that you can look up and, and you know, see other patients' questions. There are national um, forums, uh, also sponsored by the National Kidney Foundation, that are patients talking to other patients that are talking about experiences. Uh, these drugs have been brought up several times, uh, patients asking questions about side effects and who's using what. And you can read through those and see what's out there and what's going on and go to your doctor prepared with your questions. Um, that way they can spend the best amount of time with you answering what you really need to know. You be prepared, they'll be able to help you. That's wonderful advice. Thank you. Um, I also just wanted to quickly circle back, Dr. Be Dr. Basilotti. Um, there were some terms that you mentioned that I'd just like to get defined real quick. One of them was ketoacidosis. Could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so that is a form of uncontrolled diabetes. It, it really usually happens in type 1 diabetes uh, with uh, severe insulin deficiency or insulin deficiency, but it has been described in type 2 diabetes with SGLT2 inhibitors. Usually patients have a very high level of glucose in the blood when this happens, and they have ketones in the blood, um, which usually shouldn't be there. They are there when, with starvation, and they are also there with this type of uncontrolled diabetes. And it's a severe metabolic complication of diabetes or diabetic ketoacidosis, it's K-E-T-O, acidosis. Um, and I think that it's a, it's a feared complication. It's better understood and better recognized by people living with type 1 diabetes. Um, so it's not as well recognized in people with type 2. And because it's not seen in people with type 2 diabetes in general, um, we bring attention to it because it, uh, you need to have a be careful about it because it's not generally suspected in, in people with type 2 diabetes who take SGLT2 inhibitors. And the other point is that uh, unlike type 1 diabetes, where the sugar or the glucose level in the blood is often very high, when they have ketoacidosis, it may be low or even maybe normal um, with type two diabetes and ketoacidosis. Um, I think the I think that's probably difficult for people to follow, but I would just say that um, this is something you can work with your clinician to try to limit the risk if you have type two diabetes and you take insulin, and you're going to start an SGLT two inhibitor or you're entertaining discussing possibly starting an SGLT2 inhibitor. So that's really where I think it's relevant. Awesome. And the other one was albuminuria or protein, proteinuria. How do you pronounce those? <laughs> albuminuria or proteinuria. So albumin, if it's severe uh, albuminuria or proteinuria, you might have ankle swelling. Usually that involves both lower extremities. You might have foamy urine. Um, and I've had people tell me they have to flush twice to get rid of the foam, so it's a significant amount of foam. If you've ever whisked an egg or scrambled an egg, you, you might see some bubbles on the surface, and that's related to albumin in the egg. Albumin in the urine is a marker of kidney damage, um, damage to the tubules. It's a marker of, we call it endothelial inflammation. That's the lining of the blood vessels. So the higher the level of albumin in the urine or protein in the urine, the higher the risk of heart disease, 
and the higher the risk of worsening kidney disease. So that's why it's important. And that's why it's part of the heat map that you may be familiar with, the, the um, green, yellow, orange, and red risk heat map that we have for kidney disease that includes the albuminuria. So the higher the albuminuria, the higher the risk. And the lower the kidney function or the estimated GFR, the higher the risk. So, Jane, have you um, had an experience with ketoacidosis or, um, you know, high levels of protein in your urine? I do have a high protein in my urine, which is absolutely an indicator of being in stage five. Um, I will say that my husband, when he was first seeing the nephrologist, also had protein in his urine. It wasn't as significant as mine. Um, but one of the things that in his last appointment we had in December was the doctor uh, remarked how much that had improved to the point that it was trace. So Farsica is working for him really well. Thank you for sharing that. So now hearing about these medications and the different risks involved, um, would this have been something you've considered in early stage kidney disease for yourself? Absolutely. <laughs> I am a big proponent for um, finding out about things that are new, innovative, about uh, improving kidney outcomes. And so if I had learned about this earlier, um, they really weren't even available when I first was diagnosed way back with stage 3B. Um, I would have absolutely gone to my doctor, which I did later on, and said, what do you think? Is this something that would work for me? And, you know, we discussed the risks. She's, um, all, all my doctors are very clear in being firm on here is the best and here's the worst case scenarios of what are happening. And we have a discussion about what is good for me and how to, uh, what medications to take and what dosage. And so it's a joint decision, but of course she's the one with the big degree. So I have to rely on her, um, uh, compassion and understanding that she knows that I'm going to take more risks than some patients would do. But, um, you know, that's a discussion to have with your doctor uh, about doing any kind of uh, treatment. Were there any specific questions that you asked, you know, about the risk factors or the possible benefits? Yes. So, um, of course, I have diabetes and I also have um, I, I have psoriatic arthritis, so I have a lot of inflammation in my body. So we're watching my heart to make sure that that doesn't get compromised with inflammation because that is a real culprit for heart disease. Um, so when I talk to my doctor, doctors, plural, I, you know, each one has their own set of risks and concerns about, I'll say, an organ in my body. Um, but I make sure that everybody's in agreement. If one doctor were to say, no, I think this is too high risk for you, um, I would share that information with my other doctors and they would probably concur. Great. Um, Dr. Braslotti, are there any other questions patients can ask their healthcare providers to better understand the risks and benefits of these medications? Well, I think it's great that Jane is the captain of her ship, you know, as, as I think someone once said to me, and I think that's really important. And I think that uh, if these medications aren't being discussed, it's a one way to start the discussion and to start coordination uh, with um, the other uh, clinicians. Um, so I think uh, that's worth uh, mentioning. And I think that, um, that there are multiple medications we talked about today. So if one of them isn't right for you, maybe another one might be.
And Jane is taking a GLP-1 um, receptor uh, agonist, and that that's um, that like semaglutide or Ozempic is one example of, of those. Um, and that may also be kidney protective. Uh, there are studies, there's a flow study going on that um, that may show kidney protection, even though that's a type two diabetes drug, drug class. And that's generally used uh, for people with type two diabetes who have heart disease. And it's also a weight loss uh, medication um, as well. So um, if the SGLT2 inhibitor class is not right for you, there may be other options for you and uh, don't be discouraged and uh, try to maximize your kidney protection um, however you can. Uh, as the captain of your ship, as Jane really nicely illustrated. Yeah, um, speaking of captaining your own ship, Jane, I was wondering if you had any advice just for people who maybe are trying to lose weight and are struggling, you know, New Year's resolutions are around. Personally, I'd love some <laughs> advice on how you stay motivated. Well, it's very motivating to try and stay uh, healthy as best as you can. I think the gift of life is in is the best gift we've ever gotten. So I want my best life. So to take care of myself has to be a primary uh, concept that I, I hold strongly. If I don't take care of myself, nobody else is going to take care of me. For dieting, there is so many things that you can do to lose weight. The problem is you can lose weight very rapidly, very quickly, which actually is not really good for you. It's keeping it off, maintaining. That is probably the hardest part. The thing that I recommend is to first, when you're first really going on any kind of diet, whether it's for weight loss or renal improvement or whatever you're doing, is to log your food. That way you really look and see what you're consuming. And I mean, you have to be honest. If you put a piece of cookie in your mouth, you have to log it. It might have 30 calories in a small piece of cookie. You will also, if you use a good uh, app, to log your food, you will learn the nutritional value of food so that you will learn what is the best food for consumption that fills you up, satisfies you, and is also being very healthy and helpful uh, in what you're, what you're having for your meal. And eventually, because I did it for so long, I, I'm a bore. I can go out to dinner and go, oh, that's got that many calories and it's got that much potassium. And, you know, so... I've really learned a lot about food. And if you're on a renal diet, especially more towards the end stage levels, you have to be very mindful of potassium and phosphorus, both two products that are, are produced um, that you have to watch because they're, they, they can build up in your system as your kidneys don't work as well as they should. So you really have to be mindful of what crosses the lips. Um, and I, my husband and I look at this diet type of situation is not as a punishment, but as something we're doing like taking medication. And we have changed it around from being something that's punitive or a punishment to being so almost like a hobby. We grow our own um, vegetables. We grow um, our own herbs that we use. We try to cook together. We were taking cooking classes. I actually was working with the Kidney Foundation here locally to do um, cooking classes for people with renal impairment. And that was a lot of fun because we actually got to cook the food and then we got to eat it and we had the social aspect from it. We go shopping at um, farmer's markets, uh, make sure that we're getting wholesome food that hasn't been, you know, covered with all sorts of stuff on it. It's fresh and it's good. 
uh, eating whole foods, base, not processed foods makes a big difference in your diet. So it's, it's all about the attitude and how you embrace it. If you look at a diet and say it's punishment and you will fail, I will tell you after a while, you're just going to get to the point where you say, I can't do this. If you do it as a lifestyle change and embrace it, you can do it. I've, I've been, like I said, been dieting my, my whole entire life, but having the right attitude made a big difference. I was going to follow up and ask, you know, can you still find joy in eating a renal diet? And it really sounds like you have, you know. I have become such a snob that I, I have to have the best lettuce for my salads. I mean, <laughs> the freshest herbs, you know, you want to talk foodie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have an attitude about it now. <laughs> I'm also curious, um, you know, as you began to eat less sodium and less um sugar in your diet have you noticed that food tastes different um you know foods without so much sodium or sugar i've never been a salt user i don't really uh and i don't have salt on the table um just never really was one i sometimes have to use it for certain foods that have to cook with it but i don't put it in like pasta water or something like that like a lot of people do which is a big no-no in the foodie world um, yes, your palate will change after a while. I will tell you now that if we go out to a restaurant, I can tell when somebody's oversalted the food very quickly. Um, it's not it's not pleasurable for me to have something that is highly salted anymore. You just lose the taste for it. Sugar is tricky because um, I was a baker. I used to make my own candy. I used to bake all the time. That was a lifestyle change. And what we just did, instead of baking cakes, we learned how to bake bread. So I'm, I'm really good at making all kinds of uh, different homemade kinds of breads that are healthy for you. Um, but there is a little um, trick with being a diabetic. For me, it's not so bad, but I know my husband, he has a huge sweet tooth. So that is a difficult thing to get past, but uh, it is doable. It just takes time and, and, and perseverance. Could you share maybe some tips on how he's been able to kind of manage that sweet tooth? Uh, I don't have it in the house. <laughs> That's the <laughs> easiest way. If you don't see it, you you don't do it. You learn to change your activities too. Because like we used to, it was a big thing in the summer to go and have ice cream. When we were first married, that was kind of like a date thing. You just don't do it anymore. You find another activity. For example, we go walking down in a, a nature preserve that's in the village. That's very, very pretty. Uh, that's what we do as an activity instead of going out for ice cream. You just change your habits. That actually sounds just as lovely. So great. Um, so Dr. Pesolotti, can you tell us what's coming down the pipeline? Are there any new medications or therapies that you're excited about or that are currently in um, clinical trials? The medication class that Jane is taking may be more kidney protective, and that's the flow study I mentioned will be coming out soon. So we'll see if the GLP-1 uh, receptor agonist or uh, semaglutide ozempic, among others, is, uh, is kidney protective. So that would add to our um, list of kidney protective medications. Looks like they may be, but we'll, we'll see how the trial turns out. There are also studies that are exciting about the combination of the medications, particularly the SGLT2 inhibitor class with the MRA or the finerenone or Carindia. There are some trials going on now. Um, uh, Flamingo and Confidence are two names of the trials that, uh, that will hopefully give us information about how that combination could work together. And there are quite a few medications in the pipeline that are exciting that um, I don't want to 
pick one or two um, just to show any personal biases, but I think uh, that um, that it's going to be exciting to see. It's an exciting time for kidney disease. We have a lot of treatments now that we didn't have before, and we will. I think we'll have, see more coming in the future. So I think there's a lot of hope for kidney patients, and we can do more than just replace kidney function with dialysis or transplant. We can now prevent kidney failure, and I think that's really exciting. And and I think Jane really embodies that, that how she's done that really over the years, despite the predictions um, of her clinicians. And are any of these new medications effective or safe for people with GFRs, you know, below 15 or 20? Well, one thing that's it's exciting about the GLP-1 receptor agonist is some of those can be used in uh, patients who are treated with dialysis. So you can continue those with low levels of kidney function, some of them. Some of them need to be just adjusted. There's a whole list of those types of medications. So I think that um, is an exciting aspect of the GLP-1 receptor agonist. The SGLT-2 inhibitor class of medications are generally stopped when the patient starts dialysis. Um, although now we're starting to look into whether they can be given for kidney transplant recipients. So that's uh, exciting. And that's another area that kidney transplant patients with CKD can be treated potentially with SGLT2 inhibitors. And there may be studies um, going on there. So I think that, um, that knowing your level of kidney function may help you decide which of these medications is best for you with your clinicians. And um, I think... I'm going to add one other thing that I think is important to say is if your kidneys fail, it's not your fault. You know, Jane's kidneys may fail at some point. It's not her fault. Obviously, she's done a tremendous amount of advocating for herself, herself, and she's really worked hard with her clinicians, and she's coordinated her clinicians, and she's done um, research on her own or studied on her own. So she's a model elite patient, I think. But even if her kidneys fail, it's not a defeat, right? And I think that she can try to hopefully look at home dialysis if that's right for her, like peritoneal dialysis or home hemodialysis or even in-center hemodialysis if that's what she decides is best for her, but it's her decision, hopefully with her clinicians. And hopefully she can have access to a kidney transplant or get on the deceased donor list or even better, have a living kidney donor. Yeah, so Jane, speaking of you know um, treatment, have you ever been a part of a clinical trial before, and kind of what was your thought process to getting into one? I did. It wasn't actually related to um, kidney disease, but it was related to pain management. So it was kind of uh, you know more related to my psoriatic arthritis at the time. Um, I was affiliated with the organization. I actually worked for the same organization that was. Uh, hosting this clinical trial. So um, got involved with that. Um, absolutely enjoyed the whole process. I will tell you that I was very happy to get selected. There were two groups. One was going to be managing pain management through um, uh, pain medication and uh, that kind of normal type of treatment. And then this group that we were involved with was managing pain management through meditation which actually was very interesting. If you know John Kabat-Zinn, it's based on his work. Um, it was really, really powerful. It was a really uh, pleasurable thing to be able to work with other patients who were going through similar things that I was going through. I learned a lot. 
I learned enough about uh, medica- meditation that I actually became a teacher and brought it back into the division of the healthcare organization that I was working for. So yeah, it was very beneficial for me. So do you have any um, advice for other patients, you know, looking into clinical trials, any questions that they should ask or anything like that? You can ask your doctors. They may have a list. You can go to different drug companies, and a lot of them now are listing. I think the National Kidney Foundation is actually um, also posting on their website um, clinical trials that are coming up. If you go into the patient forums, um, a lot of them are posted in in those. Um, I have worked not as a clinical trial, but I have been on several pharmaceutical patient advocacy boards where they're talking about new products coming out and polling patients to to find out their reactions, for example, for Sika. So um, there's multiple ways to find out about clinical trials. The only way we're ever going to improve kidney uh, outcomes is for patients to get involved. Dr. Vassala, do you have anything to add to that, um, how patients can get involved in clinical trials if they're interested? I think university hospitals often have the most clinical trials. So if you have one near you, that might be worth looking at. And um, in addition to what Jane said, and uh, the National Kidney Foundation website, www.kidney.org is, of course, a great source. And there's a website called clinicaltrials.gov that may be worth looking at. You can type in whatever disease you're interested in in kidney disease, and you may find some trials that, that may be helpful. To, to pursue. So as we are kind of wrapping things up, do either of you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, Jane, would you like to go first? Yeah, I, I want to encourage newly diagnosed patients to uh, open up and talk to your, your healthcare team, ask your questions, learn about your um, situation and where wherever you are with kidney disease. And don't lose hope because there is so much out there now that is being done, how much work is being done with renal diets and how um, effective, simple lifestyle changes can make a huge impact. The new drugs that are coming out are really, really, really beneficial. Uh, Learn about those things. Talk to your doctors and and ask your questions. Um, If you don't advocate for yourself, nobody's going to help you. You need to take the effort, make the effort. And um, it, it's it's the best thing you can do. Thank you. I think you've really, um, you're just very inspirational and motivational. And I hope that everyone listening can take some comfort in knowing that you really can be the captain of your own ship and make decisions that, you know, change your life. Dr. Vassalai, do you have anything to add? Jane covered it beautifully. And I think being an active participant in your care is really the most important thing. And she really, I couldn't have said it better. And I think... The only other thing um, I would add is that kidney disease is part of your journey for whatever reason and try to embrace it and it doesn't define you and you can overcome it. And we have a lot of help and hope and um, I'm really excited to be part of this. And thank you, Jane, um, for telling your story and Marlena for really navigating this uh, topic, you know, so well. There's hope and uh, look to the National Kidney Foundation for more education. Thank you both so much. Your expertise and your experience has been really appreciated. So um, yeah, just thank you again for talking with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. 
We end each episode giving a shout out to a kidney patient who's celebrating a major milestone. In January of 2013, Timmy found out that his kidneys were failing and he would need a transplant. His mother, Beth, stepped up to offer the gift of life by donating her kidney to her son. This year, they are celebrating 10 years kidney strong. Congratulations, Timothy and Beth. Thank you for listening. Make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also email us directly with your comments and suggestions at nkfpodcast at kidney.org. We hope you will join us next time. And from all of us at NKF, we wish you good health.